You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. All right. Morning, family. Glad you're here. Uh, Last week, we started into this Just One series, and Marty, the beard of knowledge, came and shared with you that there's just one kingdom, right? There's just one kingdom, and there's only one way to access it. And so we talked about that. This week, we're going to build on this. Uh, Today is day two of the final week of Jesus's life in this Lenten season. And one of the things that we're focusing on in Lent is this dying of things that need to die in us so that on Easter we can experience resurrection even more powerfully. And so this is this invitation for us to consider what is it that needs to die so that we can really truly experience resurrection. And that's what we're talking about in Lent. And so uh, today we're going to look in Mark chapter 11. So last week we were in Luke chapter 19. This week we're in Mark 11. Next week we're going to be in Matthew. Um, So we're going to use all the gospels to do this, but um, we're going to jump into Mark 11, and like he said, this is legitimately a two-hour, two two hours worth of material, so I'm really going to try to skip a rock across the top of water. There's a lot of conversations to be had out of this material. Uh, I really like it, and I'm excited for it, so let's read. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. And when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. And then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Okay, what? <laughs> um, we all, this, this and what happens next just doesn't feel Jesus-y at all. Not even a little bit. Like, curse the fig tree and it dies And what Matthew is going to point out in his version of this story is that the disciples were amazed that it withered so quickly. Like, that's what they're amazed at. Not that Jesus is, they're like, man, Jesus, you woke up on the wrong side of the bed. It's not even supposed to have figs in it, on it. Like, what's your problem? Well, here's what's going on here. And I really want to, I want to help us tie like it's the same story, new day. What happened in the first day, what happened on this day, what's going to happen n- tomorrow, which is a week from today for us, what's going to happen on day three of Jesus's final week. It's all part of the same conversation. And what's going on here is that Jesus is making a statement that his disciples understand, they get it, and we don't get it because we don't ask the same set of questions. We're not looking at it the same way. It's not because we're stupid. We don't know what, that we're supposed to ask these questions. And so I want to show you what's going on here and maybe what Jesus is up to and then maybe what we can deduce from this. So in the Jewish mind, everything is a metaphor for something else, everything. And, and so the trees all become kind of a metaphor for different things. Like we know that the olive tree and the olive shoot and the olive stump, these are all metaphors for God's people. The olive tree is always a, a metaphor for God's people throughout the Old Testament. The fig tree becomes a metaphor for um, the, the Jewish leadership. And there's a reason why that happens. Um, several reasons. Number one, because the fig tree is one of two sources of sweet in, this, in the ancient world. They don't have sugar, they, especially not refined sugar. So there's really only two things that are sweet, honey and figs. And if you've ever had a fig off the tree, 
Oh my goodness. Come to Turkey with me. We'll eat them right off the, there. It's amazing. Like I'm not even joking you. We will do it. Uh, they're incredible and they are grow everywhere in Turkey and they drive them crazy. So they're like, please eat the figs. I don't have to clean them up off the ground when they fall off, but they're amazing. They're incredible. And so the figs, because of their sweetness, start to represent the, the teaching of the rabbis as these sweet things that they give us. If you remember in uh, John chapter two, Jesus talks to Nathaniel and he says, I saw you when you were sitting underneath a fig tree. And Nathaniel goes, Surely you're the son of God. Like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> How does that make him say that, right? Well, if you understand that the metaphor is not only about him sitting under his rabbi, but it's also about the passage that they're studying, their weekly parasha. Like, there's a lot of layers to that statement. We just don't know because we don't know that we're supposed to know that. Um, so that's what's going on there. This becomes, but there's a, there's a verse in the Bible that kind of connects these two that really becomes the foundation of where this is. It's found in Proverbs chapter 27. So let's read it. It says, the one who guards a fig tree will eat its fruit and whoever protects their master will be honored. And so here's this idea. The fig tree takes a lot of work. It's a finicky tree. Let me show you a picture of it. Here's the, here's the fig tree. Ah, there it is. It's the largest of the cultivated trees in Israel. Uh, it's big, and they get quite large. In fact, if I was standing underneath that, my head would probably not be in the leaves to try to give you a perspective on how big that tree is. Um, and so, I mean, it looks a little deceptive there because you don't have any frame of reference, but like that, those leaves start more than six feet in the air. So um, that, that, this is this big, huge tree, but they're very finicky. They take a lot of work. Let me show you one more picture. Um, this is about what the figs would have looked like in the season that Jesus was trying to get them. They're not ready to be eaten yet. They're just kind of starting to nub out. Does that make sense? This is what Jesus would have seen during the season that he was there looking for figs. He's not supposed to be there. They're not ready to eat. Now, I want to go back to the verse, and I want to show you the connection that they made in this. So let's go back to Proverbs 27. It says, the one who guards a fig tree will eat its fruit, and whoever protects their master will be honored. Now, the word for master is the Hebrew word rob. Let me hear you say rob. We get the word rabbi from it. And so this became a connecting point where a disciple's relationship to their rabbi becomes much like a person who guards and tends a fig tree. And so this process is called shamush. Say shamush. That's a fun word to say, shamush. Shamush is this idea that a disciple must care for his rabbi or her rabbi. They would never. If you, if you look in the Gospels, you never see Jesus cook anything with the exception of one meal at the end of the Gospel of John when all of his disciples are scattered and he's trying to bring them back together. But when his disciples are together, Jesus never cooks anything. He never carries anything. A rabbi would never carry something when his disciples are with him because they want to do everything that they can in order to help the rabbi be able to focus on the mission that he has. And so the disciple becomes, which is the Hebrew word masharet, uh, aid is another way that it's translated, serves the rabbi, not because they particularly care for the rabbi, but because they believe in the mission that the rabbi is a part of. Does that make sense? 
Okay, good. Good. Talkative group today. Um, that's got to make sense to you because this is going to matter. This, is gonna, this matters. Why are they making this connection? Of Why is Jesus cursing the fig tree? Right? So the fig tree becomes this symbolizing of the Jewish leadership and the figs become a symbolizing of the things that they teach. What is Jesus so upset with the fig tree over? It doesn't have any fruit. And he curses it. And they don't ask him, why'd you curse a fig tree? What's your problem? What they notice is that it withers so quickly. This is not Jesus being disappointed at a fig tree. This is Jesus making a statement about the Jewish leadership. And that's going to be bolstered by what he does next. Okay? So let's read on. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. Another really Jesus-y moment, right? This totally seems like something this grace, love, compassion, peace guy would do. Let's read on. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers to which we all go, holy cow, did you see what he just did there? Right? What he's using here is a rabbinic teaching technique called Gerizah Shavah. Say Gerizah Shavah. Now, whether or not you agree that this is a good practice is totally irrelevant. Jesus is doing it, okay? Here's what it is. You take a phrase out of one passage, and you take a phrase out of a passage somewhere else, and these passages aren't connected, but the points that the passages are trying to make serve the larger teaching that he's trying to get to. And so he sticks them together to make one sentence, connecting them to the passages, and so everybody around goes, oh, did you see what he just did right there? Now, here's the deal. Jesus is stinking brilliant to be able to do it, right? But these people are brilliant to be able to catch it. Jesus takes two phrases. My house is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. Out of Isaiah 56. And then you've made it a den of robbers out of Jeremiah 7. And he sticks them together. So the question is, what is he trying to say to them? Well, let's go take a look. Isaiah 56. Let's take a look at it. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right. Now, the word justice, anybody want to take a stab at it? The Hebrew word? Who said it? It's mishpat. Say mishpat. This is not retributive justice. You do the crime, you do the time. This is distributive justice. What that means is God has given everyone a portion and Mishpat makes sure that no one gets taken advantage of and everybody has their portion. This is the foundation stone of what it means to follow the God of the Bible. That we fight to make sure that no one is being taken advantage of. Right? Now, I want you to hear that because that is going to play into why Jesus is turning over money tables. Here we go. Maintain justice and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. If you're, if you're taking notes, circle the word righteousness because what is righteousness? 
We often think that righteousness is us, when we follow all the rules, we're righteous. Jesus is going to stand that idea on its head. Blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it, and keeps their hands from doing any evil. Let no foreigner... Oh, I wish I had hours on this. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. This ought to heavily influence how we deal with things like marginalized people and refugees and outsiders and people that aren't part of us. What was going on in the, in the temple was that they were leveraging rightness, following the rules as a means by which to keep people out of the temple, off the temple mount. The temple mount had a place for these people. They, God wanted foreigners on the temple mount because he, then they could see his people worshiping him. And the temple system was starting to exclude them. Here's what's happening. God gives us 613 commands in Torah. 613 commands in Torah. Now, some of those commands, they're a problem. Because they, they they're not clear. Like, they're really hard. Like, the, the command to follow Sukkot basically goes like this. Get three different branches and a piece of fruit and go stand on the Temple Mount for seven days. Seven days of this. What do we do with that? And so some of it was them adding to help define that, right? Talmud, which is the written tradition, added 3,000 laws to the 613. Now the Mishnah, which is the oral tradition and, and isn't compiled and written down, although all of the laws exist in the time of Jesus, it isn't compiled and written down until later. But the Mishnah added an additional 3,000 laws. And so what was the 613 laws of Torah became 6,613 laws and all of them were equal. And there's this issue that's going on there that Jesus is having a problem with, right? But they were leveraging all of these rules to keep foreigners out. Now, who's a foreigner? Anybody that I say so. Anybody that I want to be a foreigner is out. And so what they're doing is becoming very exclusionary and very elitist. Totally different than the church world of today. I wonder if at some level the indictment of the fig tree might be something that you and I ought to pay attention to. Let's read on. Let no eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree, which has a couple of layers to it. But what did Jesus just do? He just cursed a fig tree. He just made the tree, the dried up tree. Let nobody say I'm in a dried up tree. He's like, like this. Is a, whoa, whoa. What did he do? For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. 
and foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and, and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Where is God's holy mountain located? It's in Jerusalem. And what sits on it? The temple. Listen, if you want to honor the Lord, it doesn't matter who you are or where you came from. God has a place for you at his table. This is the message of the gospel. It's not a message of obey our rules and do it my way or you're out. This is a message that brings people in to his house of prayer. Let's read on. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. This was always God's agenda. The temple was always supposed to be a light to the whole world. It was always supposed to be a place where God could be put on display in a way that would inspire people to come and be a part of it. And what they were doing was saying, only those who follow the rules right are the ones that are welcome up here. And that's not how we put our God on display. Hold on to that thought because we're going to come back to it. So what he's saying here is, your guys, you're missing it. This place, this temple, this Jewish leadership system was always supposed to be a place of inclusion. It was always supposed to be a place where people that were on the outside could find their way to God. It was never about drawing lines that cut people out. And Jesus' issue it isn't about the fact that they're making the rules. It's that they're using the rules to mistreat people. Guess what? His conversation on the next day is going to be the seven woes to the Pharisees. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You bind up heavy burdens on people, but you won't lift a finger to help them. The issue isn't the burden. The issue is you throw these people into all these rules that they can't possibly live up to, and then you make them feel bad about it. That's Jesus' issue with the Jews. Not that he's rejecting their system, but that the system is being used to hurt people. And that was never the intent. Let's look at Jeremiah 7. This so good. This is the kind of stuff that as a Bible nerd, like I'm like, oh! Jesus is brilliant. You should totally follow him. <laughs> this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house. Okay. <laughs> What's the Lord's house? The temple. <laughs> Guess how many gates there are there? Six. Six gates. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and, and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Reform your ways and your actions and I'll let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words. Oh, yeah. And say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, mishpat, deal with each other in a way that everybody gets what God's got for them, nobody's being taken advantage of, 
if you do not oppress the foreigner and the fatherless or the widow and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Why does Jesus curse the fig tree for not having any fruit? Because the teaching that they're giving the world doesn't produce fruit. It's deceptive words that are worthless. Oh, this is so good. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you've not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name? and say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I've been watching, declares the Lord. I've been watching. Now we're going to skip a few things in chapter seven that is just, you need to go back and read it. But we're going to pick it back up in verse 21. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Go ahead and add your burnt offerings to your other sacrifices and eat the meat yourself. That's how much it's worth. That's how much you're, that's how much your following of the rules is worth. If all, you can follow all the rules in the Bible, all the rules implicitly, if it doesn't lead to you treating people in a certain way, it doesn't matter. Because it doesn't produce righteousness. For when I brought your ancestors out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I gave them this command. Obey me and I will be your God, and you will be my people. Walk in obedience to all I command you, that it may go well with you. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubborn inclinations of their own evil hearts, and they went backward and not forward. This is Jesus's indictment on the Jewish leadership. The problem is that the temple was always supposed to be a place that was a light that invited people in to see what God was like there. And they're using it as a way to exclude people and to take advantage of them. And Jesus is saying, God's not happy. Because this, your following of your rules, this isn't righteousness. I just had a clip fall. I just gave birth. That was kind of creepy. All right. This righteousness isn't righteousness at all. There are some things that need to go away. And what Jesus is saying is God in his wisdom gave us everything that we need to put him on display well. And man in his wisdom has ruined it. There's only one source for wisdom. And God is that source. And we can try all day long to manipulate, distort, and twist that because we don't like it or we have a political agenda or we want, we want things to work out in our favor or whatever. It doesn't matter what you think. If it's not God's wisdom, it is not wisdom at all because there's only one source for wisdom and God is it. I love Jeremiah chapter six, verse 16. It's one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. This is what it says. This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it. And then, and only then, you'll find rest for your souls. 
when you walk in the path that Jesus has set out for you. And it's the ancient path. It's nothing new. It's not a surprise. No, no, no new twist on it. It's the way that God has always intended for us to walk from clear back at the beginning. There's only one source for wisdom. And you can try to add your own wisdom all day long. But that's basically you saying, but we will not walk in it. And the good news is, you can come back to the path anytime you want. Because it's not about paying for what you did wrong. It's about walking the path. Jesus' invitation to the Jews is not to pay for what they did wrong. He's not like, oh, you guys are going to get it. His invitation to them is to come back to the path. Walk the path. Just walk the path. I love uh, Job 28. This isn't in your notes, but Job 28, there's this chapter. Job is a giant um, chiasm, which is a poetic structure, and 28 is the center. Uh, if you guys know, if you've been with us for a while, you know what a chiasm is. If you don't, um, Google it. But it's this giant chiasm. In the middle of it is Job 28. Job 28 says this. It has this incredible statement. Remember, this is an ancient book. He says, man has been able to do incredible things. They mine tunnels for miles in the ground and pull out gold and silver. But man has not yet been able to mine the source of wisdom. For only God is that. There's only one source for wisdom, and God's it. This is the thing that we've got to wrestle with again and again and again, because we're going to want to make following God about our own comfort and about our own ease. And so as we enter into the Lenten season, maybe there's a really good conversation to be had there about what needs to die in me so that I can truly experience resurrection. Let's look at one more passage. This is James, uh, the brother of Jesus, by the way. Okay, half-brother. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. I wish I had an hour on just that statement, the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. And I would love to pull that apart because I've watched so many people who call themselves Christians live like the devil. And they, they hang on to a lack of forgiveness. They hang on to bitterness. They hang on to making people pay, whether it's some person in the past that you're trying to make them pay today or a, a parent that treated you wrong or your spouse isn't treating you right or whatever. And you want to, oh, I'm gonna I'm I'm make them pay, right? Listen, if you harbor selfish ambition or envy, don't, don't deny it, but don't boast about it because it's demonic. That's what he calls it. It's unspiritual. Next, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find this disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure. And then it's peace-loving. It's considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit. <laughs> Because of the fruit of the fig tree, you get it? It's brilliant. Impartial 
and sincere. Peacemakers. You should memorize this verse. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Do you want the people around you to be inspired to live righteously? You're not going to do it by exercising your will over keeping the rules. When you try to make people live righteously because you want to be an example and a beacon, and listen, you should, you should obey the rules. You should. You should, but that's not how you're going to change the world. You're going to change the world by being a peacemaker. It's peacemakers who reap a harvest of righteousness. Not rule followers. Rule followers create envy and selfish deceit stuff. Think about it. It's true. Like if you try to take the moral high road in a situation, all the people around you that are trying to get you to do something wrong, what are they going to do? Ooh, look at you. Who are you, Mother Teresa? Like, whoa, whoa, what's your... They, we do, why? Because that's what happens when it becomes about the rules. But when it's about something more, when it's about peace and restoration and redemption, now we're part of God's agenda and that inspires other people to live rightly. There's no amount of rule following that you could ever do that will help the people around you want to follow the rules but being a peacemaker changes everything. And we've got to know that. Like, it's possible that you might have to do something that might really make you look bad, even, in order to maintain peace. You might have to give up a lot. Like, would God ever ask me to look bad? God wouldn't ask me to look bad. He wouldn't ask me to look stupid, would he? Well... I give you a section of Philippians 2. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be clung to. But he made himself nothing, taking on the very form of a servant. Rather than saying, God would never ask me to look stupid, Maybe we should just say, God would never ask me to do anything he wasn't willing to do first. And maybe being a peacemaker is more important than your reputation. And with that in mind, we're going to move towards the Lord's table. Uh, what we're going to do first is we're going to have some buckets come through the middle. We're going to send those to the outside. Those cards that Thad talked about earlier you can drop those in the bucket as they go by. If you're new with us, we have an open table. We take communion every week, and we have an open table, which means anybody who's willing to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with us is invited to partake. But we want you to hold those elements till the end, and we'll take them all together. While they're passing all this stuff out and sending the buckets, I want to work through some implications. Now, implications are things that we think are particularly important for that as we worked through this, these are things that we thought, man, this really sticks out. This is something that we hope everybody takes home. There's probably a lot to other places that you could think of, thank you, to, uh, to apply this and different, different fingers in your life where it might travel in different places. That is totally good. That's all wonderful. Please, please let it sift you there. Let the spirit sift your heart there. But these are just some places where we thought this would be significant, okay? First implication. 
Leaning on our own wisdom, wisdom driven by selfish ambition, produces disorder and evil. Always. This is why the book of wisdom, Proverbs says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path. Because if there's any way in you where you're leaning on your own wisdom, it's always going to lead to disorder and evil. Every time. It will. And so as we enter into the Lenten season, what we're asking ourselves is, where are those ways where I'm not leaning on God's wisdom? I'm leaning on my own understanding. What are those places in my life? What needs to die so that resurrection can happen? This is what Lent is about. And so maybe our reflection, maybe in your care group this week, maybe in your own personal time, maybe your time with your family, maybe the conversation is about what needs to die in you. Not from a self-loathing place, but from a place of, I want to experience really what it means to be loved by God, the power of resurrection in my life, and I want people around me to truly be inspired to be free. Maybe that's the conversation. Implication number two. God's wisdom produces the fruit of purity, peace, consideration, and mercy. This is the fruit that God uses to restore others. Not the fruit of being right. And there's only about a billion places where that matters. Like your marriage, in your relationship with your kids or at work, how many times have we fought so hard to be right and lost all sense of being godly? I, I like to watch Dr. Phil. Sage wisdom for our modern day. No, uh, it's interesting to me. There was, a, there was a show that, and I have it on DVR, so I don't even know what season it was. Um, but the show is this pastor and his wife who brought a homeless lady into their home. She needed a place to live. And so they brought her into their home and then she called child protective services on them because she felt like they were abusing their kids. Right now, that's a big deal, right? Because the truth is in the ministry, the accusation of abuse doesn't even have to be real. Like that really damages your capacity to lead in a spiritual sense. Um, and I watched as the, the wife, justifiably upset, talked to this lady in a way that was condescending and demeaning and angry. And I was like, yeah, I get it. Like, I get why you're mad. I get it. But that doesn't feel Jesus-y to me at all. And I'm not saying you should forgive her and bring her back into your home. I'm not saying that. But how we communicate matters. I, I don't know her heart and I'm not judging. I'm just saying, as I observe it, we've got to be so careful that we don't stand for the truth in an ungodly way. Because at that point, your truth doesn't matter at all. Not even a little bit. Last implication. Righteousness is not a matter of keeping religious rules, but it is rooted in God's restorative work. The goal of righteousness is about inviting people to live righteously, even if it means that I have to die or look bad 
or humiliate myself in the name of peace. This is what communion reminds us of. It reminds us that Jesus isn't asking you to do something crazy for him. He's asking you to do something that he already did for you. This reminds us that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is given for you. So whenever you eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the dinner, he took a cup. And he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. So whenever you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your grace. God, thank you for the challenge to let the selfishness of our own wisdom die so that your wisdom can birth something better and bigger and more beautiful in us. Lord, may we take a good hard look at the indictment of the fig tree, not so that we can feel bad, but so that you can weed out the things that are keeping us from producing fruit. God, thank you for your love and your grace, and thank you that you are a good, good father. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, visit us on Facebook and Twitter, and visit our website, liferotp.com. 